And speaking of Christmas, Happy New Year. We got to go to New Year before we can get to Christmas if, if you follow the Christian calendar. So Happy New Year. It's the first Sunday of Advent 2021. So that means it's the first Sunday of the Christian calendar, the new Christian year that begins with Advent. Advent's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. And just a heads up, Advent does some funky things with time. Like we say, Happy New Year before Christmas. That's weird. That's not how it's supposed to work. But while Advent prepares us for Christ's birth, like we just heard, Advent also prepares us for Christ's return. So we are simultaneously remembering the first coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago while we're looking forward to the time when he comes again. All while we're trying to experience hope, peace, joy, and love in the now, in the here, today. And so the already, the not yet, and the now come together in the season of Advent. And so our experience of time then becomes a very important part of our experience of Advent. And it's a key component in our worship theme for today, which is homesick. And this year of, of all years, this time of all times, it feels right to come home for Christmas. Home to the familiar sights and sounds, the smells and the songs of Christmas. I don't know about you, but I need normal. I need a little bit of tradition. I, I, I need home in my life. I, I, I've been homesick for the Christmas of my memories, and I am fully aware that the Christmas of my memory may or may not actually have happened <laughs> the way I remember it, but I'm homesick for it. I miss it nonetheless. We were just um, in Colorado this last week, and so we were driving back. It's a long drive in Kansas. <laughs> So we were driving back yesterday, and periodically we try to find local stations, and we were trying to find Christmas stations, and, and we, was, we listened to like a lot of the traditional, the old standards of Christmas. Did you realize how many of those songs are just melancholy? Like I try to think of Christmas as being joyful, but all the music is melancholy and, and homesick. Like, like, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Just like the ones I used to know. <laughs> I don't know them now, but I used to know them. Or how about, um, uh, someday soon we all will be together. If, I didn't sing that right, did I? If the fates allow, if the fates allow, someday soon. Or what about, the, here's, the, here's the one. Last Christmas I gave you my heart, but the very next day... Crushing. That's not joyful Christmas. And then today I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. We sing the saddest songs at Christmas. We're melancholy. We're homesick. And you know, I'll be home for Christmas was so melancholy that the British government during World War II banned it from the radio stations that the soldiers were listening to because they felt that it would lower morale so much for the soldiers on the battlefield. Even in the United States, the songwriters, they wrote the song during the war and nobody would sing it because it was so sad until finally, y'all know who picked it up? Bing Crosby 
picked it up, sang it, and it became a hit at, at the USO. It was a favorite for the soldiers, and they played it all the time. This melancholy theme, despite that, it carried them through the war. The ones who made it home, it carried them home. I'll be home for Christmas. And then 60 years later, like, I don't know about you, but last year, we weren't able to go home for Christmas. And so that song had an extra resonance during COVID. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. I think this song fits neatly into what I call like the homesick equation. All three variables of the homesick equation are there in this song. Home plus distance plus time equals homesick. Home plus distance plus time equals homesick. Our scripture today also pulls in all of these variables. Now, I told you that, that Advent really messes with one of them, right? Time. And this first week is no exception. In fact, we're going actually straight to the end of the Gospel of Luke, right? I told you Advent is about the birth and the end. So we're going to jump to the end at the beginning of Advent. This is Luke 21. And so this is actually right before the, the Passion of Christ begins. This is right before all those events that we know um, during Holy Week begin, where, where um, Jesus is moving toward his, his um, arrest and, and his death and then his uh, resurrection. But here he is. He's arrived in Jerusalem. He's been spending time teaching in the temples. And this is what he says in Luke 21, 25 through 38. This is one of the most Christmassy verses I know. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among the nations, confused by the roaring of the seas and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then Jesus told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will become upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God of stars, God of our hearts, our days may pass, but yours, your words will last. The earth might fade, but your word will last. Our memories might blur, but your word will last. The grass will wither, the sky could go dark, but your word will last. So as we listen today, help us to hold on to that which will last. Give us your word today. Help us to hold on to you. Gratefully, we pray. 
Amen. Now, how is that scripture for some Christmas cheer? (laughs) Terrible days are ahead. Merry Christmas. Actually, Jesus' words sound a bit more like the words we heard from Revelation last week or Daniel the week before than they sound like words of Christmas. That's why we call actually what Jesus' words there, we call that his little apocalypse. Jesus is looking forward, even as he's looking forward to or looking, looking into his death and then resurrection, he's also looking forward to the time when he will return. Jesus is speaking of the not yet of his return, even as he is walking into the now of his crucifixion. And then his first words remind us of the already of creation. Jesus speaks of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the roaring of the sea and the waves. And when he shares a parable, he surrounds us with the lush greenery of the garden. Look at the fig tree, he says, and all the trees, as soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So I want to ask you to take a moment to to close your eyes. This is always dangerous when I'm preaching. I hope you all wake back up. But close your eyes. Take a deep breath. Let your thoughts just float away. And now I want you to think of home. Whatever image, whatever word, sound, smell comes to you. Home. So what came to mind? How many of you thought of the place where you are living right now? How many of you thought of somewhere you're living and you lived in the past? Maybe a word came to mind or a smell or a, a feeling. For me, my childhood home always comes to mind. I've moved quite a bit since graduating high school, but for the first 18 years of my existence, I spent in the same home. My mom still lives there now home. I think in this scripture passage, Luke kind of does that for us Christians. Before taking us to the end times, he gives us images that bring us back to the beginning of times, to creation, the Garden of Eden, the only place that God's children called home for the first years of their existence. That is home, our home. It's, supposed, it's where we're supposed to be for all eternity, there in the garden, with God together. Where there's no weeping, no mourning, no war, no sickness, no death. This is the already home. And when we see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, we know that He brings with Him the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, and we know that Jesus will bring us back to that garden, to the new Jerusalem, our not-yet-home. Already home and not-yet-home. Jesus takes us to both those places in His little apocalypse. But where does that leave us now? What does that mean for our now home? 
And that's where I think our homesick equation comes in. Because home plus what? Distance. Home plus distance. And I think right now we are all experiencing the distance from the home where we were created to live. We are separated from our intended home by a vast distance. One of the ways that Christians throughout the centuries have defined sin is sin is separation from God. And what happened when we were back in the garden? We listened to the serpent's lies. Sin entered in and we were banished from our what? Our home. We were made to leave the only place we'd ever called home. Anybody ever, anybody remember that feeling the first day that you, you left home? Whether it was for college or for a new apartment and a new life, maybe you moved quite a distance from home. And how there's that fear, that trepidation, that excitement, you don't know what's to come. You, know, you might not know if you'll ever make it back home again. I mean, for Adam and Eve, the whole cherubim guarding Eden with flaming swords made it difficult to think about ever making it back in. Anybody else's parents guard their home with cherubim and a flaming sword so that you couldn't come back home after you left? And so the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation, God's people have been aliens, exiles, strangers in a strange land, homeless. I mean, it's no coincidence as we look toward Christmas that even Jesus, after he was born, had to flee to Egypt. A stranger, an exile, homeless. Like soldiers on the battlefield in December. This is not the life we were meant to live. This is not the place we were meant to be. We are far from home. The distance is great. And those pangs that we sometimes feel, those, that part of us that rears up periodically, sometimes in unexpected moments, that says, something is missing in my life. Some essential part of me is absent. Part of me is unfulfilled, unfilled, unfinished, even unfamiliar. We're homesick. We have been all along. As the people, as God's people, as followers of Christ, the now that we have been living in for 2,000 years is a now that continually reminds us that we are not home. Our lives are filled with moments where we look around at the sun and the moon and the stars, the roaring waters and the oceans, the fig trees, and it feels like there are signs everywhere, signs that say this is not home, signs that say things are coming to an end. We see distress among the nations, among our neighbors, our families, distress in our souls. And some days we get homesick. Homesick for the garden we once knew. Homesick for the new creation that Christ has promised. So it's no wonder, I think, that in times of distress, how many people have seen it now that we're looking at Revelation and Daniel because we're trying to make sense of the world? We've been talking about that for two weeks. We look at these places because we yearn for Christ to come. We yearn for Christ to take us home. We want that time to be now. 
And so we look to Daniel and Revelation and even Christ's own words, trying to find some indication, some sign that he is coming soon, that we will be home for Christmas. And I think that this is where our understanding of time betrays us. And that's the last part of our equation, right? Time. Because more and more, the history of God's children is one of an obsession with chronological time. Did you know what the most used noun in the English language, the most used noun, right? So Isaac, have you guys studied parts of speech yet? No, okay. The most used noun in the English language is time. We are obsessed with time. In the top 10, three words around time, day and year, also appear in the top 10 list of nouns. And then when you go to the top 20, there's four of our nouns. The four of the 20 most common nouns we use involve time, scheduling, planning, calendaring our lives, trying to control the uncontrollable. Anybody feel like time just keeps marching? Actually, time just keeps racing, and we're just trying to keep up. Like we order our years by calendars of our own making. We order our days and our weeks. We meticulously fill in lines in our planners. We're constantly checking the time like Phoenix, anxious for the next place that we need to be. So often our life just begins to revolve around the tick-tock, tick-tock of the clock. In Colorado this last week, it was my first time there uh, up in the mountains, and we, we literally had nowhere to be. We had no timeline, no schedule. We even decided to have Thanksgiving on Wednesday night because we had the food. Why not? Right? <laughs> like the calendar did not matter, and we woke up every day not to the welcome to today panic of my phone alarm going off, where it's like, beep, beep. <gasps> right? <laughs> That's a good morning. But just the sun, like the gentle morning of the sun waking us up and being able to just be and not worry about where I have to be next. And I couldn't help but thinking, lying there not wanting to get up, this is how it's supposed to be. This is how it was for centuries, for millennia. Humans lived by God's calendar, right? Not our own, by God's clock. We marked our days by when the sun was up and I could see. And I'll go to bed because I can no longer see. The rising and the setting of the sun. Sociologist Jay Griffiths has spent years studying how different cultures around the globe experience time. And she speaks of one group in Papua New Guinea where the kids, they're in a forested region, and so the kids know it's school time when the certain bird call they can hear through the forest, and that's the time of day when those birds start singing, it's time for school. The clock does not matter. And then because they live in a forest, and it's scary to walk home in a forest in the dark, when they hear the slightly different afternoon call of that same bird that's signaling the sun is about to set, they come home. No school bells to tell you when to go. No watch. It's God's clock letting you know the time has come. 
Griffiths talks about how the sense of time when she was experiencing these cultures was so foreign to her, and it really became apparent when she was in Myanmar, and she was with a group of people called the Karen people in Myanmar, and she became swept up and excited about the local talk. There was going to be a wedding, and as a sociologist, she's like, anthropologist, she's like, this is perfect. I get to study their wedding, right? I get to experience this wedding. And so as a Westerner, her natural question was, hey guys, when is the wedding so I can check my calendar to see if I'll still be here. She got confused looks back from the people around here. Like, this was not a concept that the Karen people had that you would check the calendar to see when the wedding was. There was no calendar date and time. There were no save the date invitations that went out for this wedding. There were no meticulous schedules and planning. Instead, she got the reply, the wedding will happen when it's time. The wedding will happen when it happens. The timing of this wedding will make itself known. In other words, when is the wedding? The wedding will happen in the fullness of time. How's that for an anxious wedding, right? Maybe you have kids that have been married or might be married someday when they say, hey, mom, dad, I'm going to get married. Okay, when? <laughs> we'll know when we know. That's not helpful. There will be signs and a sense that the wedding is now. It reminds us that there is a sense of time beyond our human clocks. That there is a sense of time beyond our calendars. That there is a sense of time beyond our day planners. There is a sense of time that, as unnerving as it might be, that is beyond our control. There is a sense of time where the already and the not yet and the now just coalesce into one. That's God's time. I think our sense of time, sometimes it really amplifies our homesickness and not knowing, like, if we don't know the time, it makes it worse, right? When am I going to go home? When will I finally be home? I want to know. I want to put it on my calendar. I want to schedule the second coming so I can be ready. I want to know when homecoming is, God. <laughs> this someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow. That's not my kind of song. <laughs> like, I want to know we will be together on December 24th, 2021. We're meeting at 11, so lunch will be served at 11.30. And then at 2, you got to leave because I'm done with company, right? That's what I want to know. This is the way, this, these are the lyrics, by the way, that Judy Garland sang back in the day. Um, someday soon we'll all be together if the fates allow. We don't like that. So these are the words that we sing now. And Michael Buble, if you listen to him, through the years we'll always be together. Like we need certainty. We'll always be together if the fates allow. Not someday soon, maybe, perhaps. I don't know when though. Always be together if the fates allow. We want always, not someday. Jesus though gives us the someday. Be alert at all times. You don't know when. Someday. Be ready. Keep watch. I'm coming back to take you home. Not in your time. You can't, you won't get a Google alert that tells you, hey, Jesus is coming. Right? Your watch won't jiggle and wiggle to tell you Jesus is on his way. You can't put it on your human calendar. Just know, like a good wedding, it will happen in the fullness of time. It's a promise. I think there's hope in that. Promised. 
but it will come. And for all our need for certainty and for dates and hard dates and calendar times, like we might not want to read a scripture like this at Christmas. It didn't feel like Christmas, did it? No. No. Especially when I want to start talking about baby Jesus right now. Not in four weeks. And so we might want to ban a scripture like this from Ab. Like, don't read that around Christmas. Like the British banned I'll be home for Christmas. Like, this will just make us too homesick. This will make us too sad at Christmas. But there's a hope in there, even in the melancholy. I think it's why we come here every week. It's why we spend four weeks every year leaning into the already and the not yet. Because there's a sweetness, bitter though it may be sometimes, in the memory of what has been and what will be. There's hope in knowing that we will be there again, that we will go home. Like soldiers on the battlefield singing, I'll be home for Christmas, and finding hope, even if it's only in our dreams. Jesus reminds us that we will be home one day. And so Advent is our time to sink into the memory of what will be, to experience a bit of what already has been now. Here, today, and for the next four weeks, as we prepare. Amen? Amen.